0: From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. In this episode of Land Stories, we have quite the story to tell. It is ostensibly a story of business tycoon and then Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush coming to Michigan in June of 1986. However, the visit itself was very much overshadowed by the backstory behind the visit, in particular, one of the people, actually the person, that George Herbert Walker Bush came to Lansing to see, a very well known local businessman by the name of John P. McGough so on this episode of land stories we are going to talk about the june 1986 visit to lansing and why it was so controversial when george herbert walker bush came to lansing and some of the fallout of that visit as well as some of the background behind why there were a couple dozen protesters that showed up at the airport to greet then vice president bush john p mcgolf the Panax corporation and a vice president on this episode of Land Stories. So, the story actually does begin uh, way before the day of Monday, June 16th, 1986, but we will talk about that Monday here uh, for a few moments before we get into the background story. Monday, June 16th, 1986, is dateline, and the location is Lansing, Michigan. And if we open up a copy of a newspaper on that day, we would have read a headline that Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush came to Lansing, Michigan, to meet with local businessman John McGough. And as it turns out, protesters met Bush and the entourage that the vice president brought with them at the airport. The reason why protesters did that is because Vice President Bush at the time came to Lansing to meet with... The person who started the Pennex Corporation, that would be John P. McGough. And McGough, by the time 1986 rolls around, has become a prominent member of the Republican Party. And he is one of the donors that the Republicans can rely on to fund campaigns. So in 1986, it's an election year, U.S. House of Representatives every two years, all U.S. House seats go up for uh, re-election. And in this case, Bob Carr, his U.S. House Representative seat was the uh, seat being contested. And Jim Dunn was a Republican from Wayne County, who happened to be the candidate the Republicans chose to contest that election. Bob Carr, at that point, had been the incumbent Democrat and had held the seat for several terms. Now, John was well-known in the Republican Party, having been a property developer in the Detroit area for many years. He made a name for himself in the Michigan business community and had actually entered politics way before the 1986 election. He unseated Bob Carr in 1980 when that seat was up for re-election and so uh, had served one term in the U.S. House of Representatives from the 1981 through 1982 term. And then, it did not get re-elected, and indeed, the voters returned Bob Carr to the uh, House of Representatives. And the White House comes back into the picture here because the reason why Vice President Bush, as I said a moment ago, came to Lansing in 1986 was to raise money for the Jim Dunn campaign. So, this then gets us to the point where uh, Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush has come to Lansing and... That uh, visit, as most vice-presidential visits into an area like this, uh, where they're going to come to the area via airplane, begin, and that would be with the then-vice president flying to the Lansing Capital Airport and plane lands, there are protesters that greet him there. Uh, Maybe greeting isn't the right word, but I I don't know about you, but me, oftentimes when I read through newspaper articles or what have you, stories online, that talk about protesters, oftentimes the author of the story uses the word greet, which I always thought was, you know, kind of a little bit strange, but nonetheless they do. And so in the uh, research that I conducted to compose this episode, the word greeting uh, was used frequently in the newspaper articles that I was able to find that discussed this visit. And in fact, researching the uh, story here turns out to be a really uh, interesting and important story within itself. And part of the reason for that is because in researching for this episode, I really did come right to that point where history ends and journalism begins. And there is actually a point where history ends and journalism begins. And I must absolutely give full credit to a professor I had as an undergraduate at Central Michigan University years ago, Dr. Mitchell Hall, for introducing into my young impressionable mind this idea that historians and journalists kind of try to do the same thing with one super huge difference, and that super huge difference, not an academic term, but still one we can use is really all about time it's all about when the events or the people or the phenomena or the buildings that the historian or the journalist is writing about took place or were prominent or were pertinent to the story that a said historian or journalist is trying to uncover and in the case of the story that i was trying to uncover here uh, with this episode of land stories I ended up very much relying on the sources that I was able to locate through old newspapers, as well as an absolute incredible source that I found I'm going to talk about here momentarily. But the reason why I mention this now is because the sources that I consulted were very much mostly newspapers produced by journalists, of course, at the time, and when historians research topics They really are used to working on subject matter that happened quite some time ago. And newspapers, of course, are a really obvious source to look for anything that would have received a fair amount of public uh, mention. And so it's not at all surprising, therefore, that when I started to inquire about John McGough and the Panax Corporation and how they ended up being involved in this vice-presidential visit to the state of Michigan, to the Lansing area specifically— Now it's no surprise that newspapers were the first thing that popped in my mind, places to look. But then that brought right back into my mind this very idea that I was researching something that I was going to be relying heavily on the work of journalists to uncover, but at the same time, topics that are involving people that are, well, still alive, still around. And that is really a very important distinguishing factor, I think, between where journalism ends, where history ends, and journalism begins, if we wanted to go chronologically on our consideration of the subject, because historians are, I think, a little bit more comfortable, at least speaking personally, in writing about people that aren't alive anymore, whereas journalists, they oftentimes write about people that are still alive. And the very nature of Human existence and time and the passage of time means that when a historian approaches a subject that happened uh, 30 or 40 years ago, roughly that 30-ish, 40-ish year ago time frame, which is when this event happened, actually 38 years ago, we historians are not only existing in the domain of writing about people that aren't around anymore. We are in the domain of writing about people that are still around, or at least in the case of a subject matter such as this, discussing writing about a subject that involves events, people, phenomenon that aren't completely gone to people that are still alive. And so we need to be respectful of that. And it is something that I have very much kept in mind in researching this topic here, Now, there's one more thing I need to mention as we are getting into this more deeply here, and it's also related to the theme that I just spent a few moments contemplating. And that is, this episode discusses some topics that are, well, they're a little bit difficult for us because it involves violence perpetrated against people who are protesting. And so, a little bit of a warning to you listening right now, then about five minutes from now, Um, This episode is going to discuss a very difficult topic, and it is a uh, protest that involved children being assaulted by the police. So, warning to you, that comes up in about five minutes. So, with all this said, the moment that we want to return our minds back to is the moment of Monday, the 16th of June, 1986. And there are protesters at the Capital Region International Airport greeting—there's that word again— Vice President Bush as his plane lands. Now, why were those protesters there? What were they actually protesting? Were they just protesting the mere presence of Vice President Bush? Well, no, they were not. They were protesting something that they believed he had a direct tie to in his coming to Lansing to meet with John McGough. So, let's talk about John McGoff. Who was he? Why has his name come up? And why was George Herbert Walker Bush in Lansing to see him? John McAuth has quite a fascinating story, actually. And in researching this episode, I absolutely was amazed at all of the connections that I was able to find with Mr. McAuth and various community organizations and businesses that are in the Lansing area even to this day. So John McAuth comes to Michigan actually after having grown up in Pennsylvania. He grew up in Edgewood, Pennsylvania, which isn't far from Pittsburgh, and his father worked in the uh, local steel industry. After he graduated from high school, like many young men who were born in the 1920s, he ended up being called to service for his nation. During World War II, he saw action in France and Germany, as part of the 3rd Infantry Division Medical Battalion. After that, he enrolled at the Michigan State College, what we now call Michigan State University. And from there, he earned a bachelor's degree in journalism and eventually went on to earn a master's degree in history. That's right. He earned a master's degree in history and wrote his master's thesis on the establishment of the Michigan Agricultural College. So essentially, his thesis was the history of the college and why there was a degree of controversy uh, surrounding the establishment of it. Eventually, he ended up working for Michigan State University in an administrative role. And from that point on is when McGough actually made a couple of what would become very important local connections to his future business career and ended up starting the company that would eventually become Panax Corporation. And the very beginning of that company is in the formation of the WSWM FM radio station and the corresponding Mid-State Broadcasting Corporation. McGough's life ended up taking a dramatic turn for the, um, well, for the better in terms of his financial future and his business success when he befriended Michael Dow. Michael Dow is the son of Alden Dow, a uh, very well-known person in Michigan history. And, of course, the Dow name is well-known around the state. In befriending Alden Dow's son, Michael, McGough was able to obtain a loan from Michael's father, Alden Dow. And with that money, he formed an investment group with Michael Dow and Clarence Dusty Rhodes and Harold L. Good, all men that would become well-known names in Michigan business community in the uh, print and broadcast media businesses as well. And very much because of the founding of WSWM and the Midstate Broadcasting Corporation. The radio station... WSWM went on the air out of a broadcasting of a private residence on M43, kind of between East Lansing and Williams, heading out towards Okemos. If uh, any of you listening, you're familiar with the uh, Lansing, East Lansing, mid-Michigan region, that's M43. Well, that stretch of M43 that runs through this part of Ingham County is the world uh, we're talking about here. And so that's where the radio station broadcasts out of. And McGough formed the company with his initial investors, and then went on to hire a staff to run the radio station and its broadcasting company. And there is a Lansing Community College connection into here in that the gentleman that McGough named to head the company be the station vice president involved in day-to-day operations, a gentleman by the name of James Anderton, who later uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, went on to serve briefly as the third president of Lansing Community College. So many years into the future. Our story right now is taking place in the nineteen fifties, so it was several decades into the future, but eventually that would happen. So getting back to the formation of WSWM and the Midstate Broadcasting Corporation, this was McGough's really the beginning of a business career that would eventually see McGoff forming the Panax Corporation. And Panax itself was a uh, media conglomerate, really, is what it was. Panax owned radio stations, it owned TV stations, and it owned newspapers. And in fact, McGough expanded Panax itself into the publishing business, more broadly speaking. And in that capacity, ended up acquiring many newspapers around the country, including several in Michigan that include the Daily Press in Escanaba, the uh, Mining Journal of Marquette, and the Daily News in Iron Mountain. Now these are Upper Peninsula, Western Upper Peninsula locations, these newspapers, and McGough would eventually express a big interest in playing a role in developing the Upper Peninsula economy. This is something that after World War II actually Broadly speaking, around the state of Michigan, there is a considerable interest in assessing the economic situation of the Upper Peninsula. Which, by the time you get into the post-World War II era, the UP has had a quite a different economic turn of fortunes than the Lower Peninsula, especially the southern part of the Lower Peninsula. The western part of the UP relied very heavily on mining as its, its economic base throughout the late 1800s and really the first half of the 1900s, and world war ii represented a real peak in the mining sector in the western up after the war ended copper mining industry which already had been on the decline declined even further a lot of changes in the iron ore industry and the long short of it is the western upper peninsula economy took a rather dramatic turn for the worse when uh, those changes in the mining sector uh, lessened the uh, economic impact that that sector had on that part of the state's economy. So after World War II, there's a considerable amount of interest amongst the state's business leaders, its business community, amongst the state's politicians to try to develop the Upper Peninsula economy into something beyond mining. That would be quite the discussion for another episode of Land Stories as to the extent of those economic development efforts and the short and long-term significance of them. But for now, the reason why I mention it is because McGough never lost his interest in this aspect of the Upper Peninsula in developing economically and ended up going on to be appointed to the Board of Trustees at Northern Michigan University as sort of a a lasting example of how much he uh, very much valued his ability to impact the Upper Peninsula. Now, McGough's business operations, though, still very much had their Lansing tie to them and were headquartered in Lansing, even though, or the Lansing area, even though McAuliffe operated very much, not only around the state of Michigan, but around the United States and around the world. And that around the world aspect of his business operations is actually the whole reason why those protesters were at the airport on June 16th, 1986 to begin with. This part of the story takes us to South Africa. and takes us to December of 1973 when McGough founded Zanap Limited in South Africa. McGough founded this company. Actually, it was an arm of the Panax Corporation, more broadly speaking. And Zanax Limited was the name of the company that the Panax Corporation set up in South Africa in December of 1973. Later on, they founded another company called Panax Limited. And then that company, Panax Limited, was essentially used to purchase a large controlling stake in Zanap. Now, between 1974 and 1975, this Panax company then, it was set up in South Africa, eventually put about a half a million dollars in setting up a printing operation, a printing facility in Johannesburg. The South African government was heavily involved in this because they underwrote the business transactions. In other words, they provided some of the finance capital that allowed the Zanac company to set up and operate in South Africa to begin with. So the business ties that McGoff had in South Africa really could not be separated from the South African government. This is where McGoff is going to eventually run into a whole slew of trouble And there is, it must be pointed out, there is still a considerable degree of uncertainty over the extent at which McGough did actually face legal troubles or legal challenges based on his operations in South Africa. Now, what we do know is between 1974 and 1975, as I mentioned a moment ago, Panax Corporation invested. Several hundred thousand dollars, or the equivalent of several hundred thousand dollars, in South African currency at the time, building a printing facility in Johannesburg. Over the next several years, the Panax company would expand its operations throughout South Africa. And in fact, McGough used support from the Michigan Chamber of Commerce to promote his business interests in South Africa and other business interests. Now, There's a couple of things to keep in mind here with regards to doing business in South Africa and why in the 1970s this may have been a country that uh, had interest in American and other investors in expanding their business operations into new markets. South Africa was seen as one of the uh, most important developing markets in Africa, and in the early and middle 1970s, South Africa itself was on the brink of what would eventually become a major political and cultural change, a outright revolution really in the country with the dismantling of the apartheid regime. Apartheid, the word apartheid is a word that has its roots in Afrikaans, which is a language that developed in South Africa out of the colonization of the region by the British and the Dutch in the 1800s and 1900s, by the time you get to the middle 1970s, South Africa has existed for about 30 years, essentially a one-party state. It was governed by a party known as the National Party, and they were a white government, so a government of the white ruling minority in South Africa. The population of South Africa in the mid-1970s was about 15% white, about 85% black, yet it was virtually impossible for blacks to hold any political power and had very little economic power in South Africa as well. The entire uh, national party governing structure was based on instituting a rigid system of segregation to keep its white minority government in power. Now... On the morning of the 16th of June in 1976, massive student protests broke out across uh, Soweto in South Africa, which is an industrial city in the country. The protests were student protests. It was mostly K-12 age students. So we're talking about kids. We're not talking about college students, young adults, although what happened to these kids... In Soweto, on the 16th and 17th of June in 1976, certainly wouldn't have been anything good if it had happened to adults, but it must be pointed out that it didn't. It happened to children, and thousands of children took to the streets to protest the attempt by the white government to institute mandatory speaking of Afrikaans in schools, where previously uh, the children had not been instructed in what was seen as a, a colonial language imposed upon the population. And so the students, kids, went out to protest this in mass, and the police opened fire on them, including killing some of them. And some of the most horrific images that ever emerged out of the apartheid regime in South Africa actually came from the Soweto uprising, as it was called, including an absolutely horrific image of a 12-year-old boy's body being carried by a man with his sister running aside after having been gunned down and killed by the police. So absolutely horrific, horrific events that occurred there. Now, the Soweto uprising happened on June 16th. And it happens to be that in June 16th of 1986, so the Soweto uprising happened on June 16th, 1976, exactly 10 years to the day of this horrible event that happens and makes national and international news and actually is an event that brings really the, the whole situation in South Africa the horribly repressive regime of the National Party and apartheid out into the public. And internationally, the world becomes aware in a way that it had not been before what was going on in South Africa. So, when we get to Lansing, Michigan on June 16th, 1986, what we have actually arrived at is the 10 year anniversary of the Soweto Uprising. Therefore, the protesters that met then-Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush at the Capitol Region Airport that morning were there because it was the 10th anniversary of the Soweto uprising, and those protesters knew that George Herbert Walker Bush was in town to go to a luncheon that McGough hosted at his private residence to raise money for the Republican Party, in particular that campaign campaign, for jim dunn against bob carr and sadly uh we're out of time for this episode of land stories so we are going to have to pick this story up and carry it on on another episode of land stories you've been listening to land stories with me david seeweck for more information on this program and to stream past episodes visit lccconnect.org lcc connect is the official home of the voices vibes and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the Vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.